Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today shares how the cycle of unlearning is a new way of thinking and a new way of leading organizations in every industry. It's not difficult to learn more. What is difficult is to know what to unlearn, what to stop and what to throw away. This is the paradox of success. While thinking and doing certain methods may have brought you success in the past, it's almost certain that they won't continue to bring you success in the future. We welcome author of Unlearn, Let Go of Past Success to Achieve Extraordinary Results. Barry O'Reilly, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Aidan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show and have a copy of Barry's book here, Unlearn, up for grabs. If you just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and keep an eye out for little video excerpts that we'll share on LinkedIn. Barry, over to you. So how the hell did you end up over in the States and uh, so deeply entrenched in innovation and changing mindsets? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit of a, a wild journey. It's never a straight line, I guess, for, for most people either. But I guess the first time uh, I had the opportunity to sort of uh, come to America was I did a J-1 visa in uh, 99. I came out to San Francisco uh, and I got a job at a company called CitySearch.com, which um, at the time was this business where you would pay uh, $50 a month and we'd come around and basically take photos of your, your business and, and put it on this thing called the internet at the time. And you got a web page that was like, you know, barrysrestaurant.citysearch.com. And um, it was a startup and it gave me like this really sort of uh, firsthand sort of experience. I, I could write HTML, so I was a highly qualified software engineer at the time. Like that, that was literally where we were at. And um, But our, our number one competitor was Zip2, the company we were actually going to merge with. Uh, and they, they were Elon Musk's first company. Uh, and uh, so it was really interesting time where people were like really getting into this sort of uh, space and... Yeah, it just it just gave me a great chance to sort of uh, work with and understand what it was like to do technology and product innovation, and and that gave me my taster. And um, my next opportunity, then I, I started a mobile games development company in Scotland, of all places, um, and we launched this game uh, which was called Wireless Pets, and and it became the most popular uh, wireless played game in all of Europe. Got us funded. And, and nobody was building these. It was just after Nokia had Snake on their phone. That yeah. was the only game people could play, right? And many many hours were wasted with Snake. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Every uh, bus and train journey you can think of. But just after those phones, they had a really they put really small processors on uh, phones that you could actually port over, like the equivalent of Atari games from the sixties and seventies. And uh, so we just started building these games, and nobody was doing it. And Next thing I had uh, Sony and Sega and Disney ringing us up and, you know, we, we were, we built the Lilo and Stitch game for Disney in, in sort of t early 2000 and, uh, but, but, you know, it was super fun. I had no idea how to build a company. So we, we had great fun for two years, but blew that business up and <laughs> but I, it, it was just sort of um, great. Like it was just great experience for me, you know, and at that time I was moving more out of being an engineer and into product and, I was much more interested in like, you know, what, what did customers want? What, what was the needs rather than the engineering side of it, bringing it to life? And um, so I took uh, six months off, backpacked around South America. I went down to the Rugby World Cup in Australia in 2003. Um, I just loved Australia and, and ended up finding an initiative that 
It's $800 million fund from all uh, countries in Southeast Asia where they were trying to build next generation education for kids to teach them through games, actually. So we were building these games to teach kids uh, Japanese language, arithmetic. Um, again, it's just a really great, fun experience. And uh, a- after that, I, I moved um, to Philippines and then to, to London and, and joined a company called ThoughtWorks. And so anyone who's familiar with the agile software development movement, uh, Martin Fowler is one of these uh, people who sort of signed the Agile Manifesto and probably he would call himself a, a sort of loudmouth in the space. And he, he, he worked at that company and I wanted to go and learn from these people. And um, so I spent, you know, six years working there. I ended up um, you know, writing a book, Lean Enterprise, with two of my uh, co-colleagues uh, there. Uh, Jez Humble, who's very well known in the software industry, he wrote Continuous Delivery, which is sort of the seminal book for uh, rapidly doing software releases. Um, uh, and Eric Ries, who wrote Lean Startup, picked, you know, so many people had read the Lean Startup and they were like, well, we're not a startup, we're larger organizations, how do we do innovation? So uh, Jez, myself and Joanne Molesky wrote Lean Enterprise and that just, um, you know, that book sort of was very, it just went uh, gangbusters, really. And great, gave me a great opportunity to work with leaders from all over the world. And, um, I, you know, on the back of that, then I, I uh, quit my job in London and moved over here to San Francisco and started my own business. So I've been here six years. Uh, it's been a whole lot of fun, uh, you know, still figuring stuff out along the way. And really unlearn was sort of born out of that you know I was sort of working with a lot of these uh, execs in fortune 500s and very very talented people Uh, but the thing I kept coming up against was learning new things was not hard for them it was them unlearning their existing behavior or mindsets that had made them successful in the past but it was actually limiting their future success Uh, so that was the huge aha moment for me is not teaching these people how to learn, but teaching them to let go. Uh, and, and as the world was changing, technology was changing, customer demand changing, and they were holding on to methods and mindsets that made them successful previously, and they weren't working. Um, and, and them and their businesses were sort of getting into trouble. And, you know, th- that's what the book's packed of stories from working with companies like that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into some of them. Yeah, man, what a brilliant story. And what a brilliant background, because you're still very young, and you still have so much more to do. And uh, for those of us looking at on YouTube here, you're probably going, what age is that guy? The fa- fabulous tale of Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I try to I try to stay feeling young, at least. Yeah, well, unlearning is obviously paying off. But it's it's just such a valuable, valuable story, because it gives context to where this book came from. Because that comes across in the book as well. And, and I want to let our audience know they're sick of hearing about my forthcoming book at this stage. But I, I Barry wrote an amazing endorsement. But more important than that wrote, gave me some brilliant pointers in the book for stuff. And and by the way, you did that before I had read your book, because I only have capacity to read the book the week before the show. And you know, when I read it, it was like, oh, there's so much alignment in, in letting go and the importance of that letting go to create new energy to to create going forward. And um, I, I wanted to use that because I mentioned sport a couple of times in the book. 
But you start the book with a great story of this. And it's the story of the remarkable power of unlearning and the unlearned story of Serena Williams. I love this one. Let's share this. Yeah, well, you know, Serena is uh, just uh, a phenomenal athlete. There's, there's just no two ways about it. Um, and it, the interesting part for her is that she's actually getting better as she's got older. But most tennis players um, finish and retire at the age of 27. She's nearly 40. Um, and she's still, you know, competing at the highest level. But it, it wasn't uh, always that easier for her. At the age of uh, sort of when she was getting uh, 29, she was out in Munich and she stepped on a piece of glass, damaged her ankle um, and lost in sort of the final um, of the, the US Open. Um, but then following that, she went on to play in Australia and uh, got knocked out in the, sort of an earlier round. And uh, But in Paris, uh, she got knocked out in the first round of the Grand Slam, which had just never happened to her, to someone who was ranked, you know, 200th in the world. So everyone was writing her off at this stage. And um, interestingly, you know, she, you know, she went to practice in a court uh, around Paris. And, you know, somebody who was watching her was another tennis coach uh, who was sort of a, a little bit of a edge case scenario, Patrick Morampu. And his father was like the founder of the largest energy renewable company in France, huge entrepreneur, uh, really well recognized, wanted his son to go into the business, you know, all, all the sort of classic tales of a sort of a family business. But Patrick just didn't enjoy uh, being an entrepreneur, so to speak, in the business world, at least anyway. And he quit and wanted to open up a tennis academy. And um even within the tennis world, he was seen as a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a oddball who didn't fit there. But anyway, he was watching Serena practice, uh, approached her as she was practicing and sort of gave her some uh, pretty brutal or, or, you know, honest feedback. And uh, she really reacted quite curiously to it. So in, instead of going, who, who the hell do you think you are? She was was intrigued and they ended up practicing together for the um, rest of that week in Paris and then she she flew home to Florida, uh, and as she was going back to complete uh, in Wimbledon, as uh, she fired her dad as her coach, who had coached her since she was a kid, literally, um, and hired Patrick to work with her, and and basically uh, what happened from there is is almost mythical. Um, uh, this is at the age of thirty, and she started winning more. So she went and won Wimbledon. Um, her win loss ratio went up by fourteen percent. Uh, she in in the you know, she got she's winning like ninety two percent ratio up. Her Grand Slam uh, getting to the finals improved by seventy one percent. Her her beating the top ten uh, players went up by thirty eight percent. And this is all as she's like going over the classic tipping point where everyone else is finishing at twenty seven and she's into her mid thirties and she's still beating all these people. You know, and, and a lot of it was all these just small little changes, things, how she prepared for games. It's like tiny little tweaks, hitting the ball a little bit sooner um, how she prepared for games. Um, and, you know, it's just it was an inspiring story for me because I think the, the parity really with any high performance athlete, high performance leader is that if you rely too much on what has brought you success in the past, uh, it, you struggle, right? And uh, the world changes, technology changes, you change. You, And if you're not recognizing where your existing behavior is limiting you uh, or have a system to, to let you see those sign 
happening, you're going to struggle. Um, and I think the the best leaders I've worked with, both in uh, the business world and and, and inspired by people like Serena, um, really cultivate this uh, ability to unlearn, put themselves in uncomfortable situations, find their edges, try and extend them, um, and are very aware. And but I, and and I've just seen this in so many examples from, you know, I've had the pleasure to work with. CEOs like Willie Walsh and how he turned around IAG, International Airlines Group, with some of the work that they've done, uh, coaching executive teams at Capital One, Wells Fargo, um, you know, working with groups at Apple, just so, so many different companies of these phenomenal leaders who have really sort of embraced a different way of working and thinking. Um, and yeah, really in, happy to share as many of these stories as I can. You know, I think they're they're really inspiring. And that one actually made me think back to my own sporting career. And one of the pinnacles of my career was playing in Toulouse in France. It was a team I wanted to play from when I was when I first saw them play. I was 20. It was traveling like you traveled a lot. And I thought of how I got there. So it was a mix of visualization and, you know, goal setting, etc. But also, I was injured quite a lot. And when I got injured, I used to go to the fitness coach, and I'm going to name drop him here, Aidan O'Connell's brilliant coach. He had come back from unlearning and relearning from stuff in the States, from learning from American football, brought it back to rugby. And I said to him, because I was injured, I was like, well, test out that stuff on me. I'll be your guinea pig. And I thought, I thought about this actually through reading your book. And it's like, um, it's very similar to when people actually get an opportunity to unlearn it usually comes as part of a crisis so in that in instance the crisis was me being injured and then giving me the space the learning time to actually take on new information and I thought that was really valuable and then I'm going to tie it back to what you said in the book about Patrick the coach and Serena Patrick helped Serena see the blind spots in her game that she was unaware of sparking new perspectives new thinking and new behaviors but it also made me think of this Barry that We've done a lot of shows lately, and it's just by by serendipity that they've been on humility and curiosity. Ed Hess, for example, Ozan Veral, Michael Bungay Stanier, and they all talked about the necessity to be curious. And you highlighted this that that Serena embraced curiosity in a huge way. It's a funny one as well, Aidan. Right? Like, if I ever ask people, are they curious? No one's ever told me they're not. And yet often our behavior when, when we're in the moment is counter to that. You know, a funny example I think we can all resonate with is like, imagine you've given somebody who's more junior than you a task to do, and then they start solving it in a different way than you would do it. You know, what's your initial reaction? Now, most people sort of laugh and go, oh, they're obviously doing it wrong. You know, because, uh, uh, but then other people will sort of recognize and go, ah, you know, like one of my sort of favorite examples of this is um, Joe Narenya, who was the COO of uh, Global Markets for HSBC, right? And what he would do is every year when the graduates came into the company, he would give them problems to work on that he was working on, specifically to see what new ways, new techniques, new tools would they use to tackle challenges that he wasn't even aware of. So you can imagine like in a, a company like a HSBC, highly bureaucratic, big company, where you've won the most senior people in the company sitting down with the most junior people in the company to sort of learn from them, right? The, the, the cultural artifact that creates is just phenomenal. 
right? It, it, it role models curiosity um, and encourages other people to do that. You know, but, but I think a lot of us, um, especially when we're under pressure, you know, the ability, you have to get stuff done, uh, you know, the execution gene. And, and someone says, I've, I've a different approach that we could try. But, you know, people, people will sometimes often shut them down and go, no, just do it this way. Get it, get it done the way we know how to do it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's always potential that, that, you know, you're missing out on something there. And, and it's, it's a hard, as you say, reflection is a word that, that uh, really resonates as well with me. Is that good leaders reflect, like thinking is an activity too. Understanding the step you have taken, what has been the outcome? Was it positive? Was it negative? Do you need to adapt or change what you're going to do for the next sort of iteration? Um, and I think reflection is a, is a thing that people don't intentionally do. They're, again, they're so busy in this execution mode, just keep doing what we've always done. And then the world is changing around them and, and you know, they're, they're still stuck in the same mode. And again, I, I often say it's not companies that get disrupted, it's individuals. You get wedded to your ways of working, thinking, behaving, and the world is constantly changing. So if you're not looking for those signals about where you're not living up to the expectations you have, or you're not hitting those outcomes and adapting, you know, that's where the gap appears. And I think that's where, where people and companies uh, get sort of disrupted. You were saying there about the you know, somebody comes up with a new idea. I had this idea that that I used to run when when I had a new hire, and I used to call it reverse onboarding. And the whole idea was that the new hire, after a period of three months had to come and present what all the stuff that we were doing wrong in their eyes. So and the, the, my whole thinking was, you only have a little period of time, you have this window of opportunity where they can actually spot those things. And then then it becomes quite much like the furniture, they just kind of either they resign to it. And they just go, Oh, it's just the way I'm just gonna have to put up with this, you know, they might be complaining to their partner back at home, but in the workplace, they just get on with it. I thought about that. But then I thought, actually, the, this was years ago. And since then, I've learned a lot. And I know that this is so much to do with the brain that the brain actually learns things as habits to save energy. And we had a brilliant guest a few just before Christmas, Lisa Wimberger, and her whole idea was called neurosculpting. And it, and she said this, and I, I thought of you when and that's why I asked, I don't usually ask the guest to share their story. But the amount of travel you did, and the amount of new experiences you did, and I, I include the six months in South America, which I'm so jealous of, and I want to do <laughs> when my kids have when I'm, when I'm an empty nester, I am so hitting there. But the whole idea is that as you travel, she said, your dopamine circuits are firing because you're you're almost on the lookout for all new information. And that's why you'll spot things and you kind of go, Oh, look at that cafe there, etc. But she said, if you're learning in that state, you will take in so much more knowledge versus a kind of steady state environment that you're so used to you go to the same office all day, you know, what time of year it is by what activities you're doing, you're not learning there. And then another guest brilliant guest we had on the show, Daniel Amen, he said, if the brain is not learning, it's dying. And I thought exactly what you're saying here, that organizations are just bunches of individuals, and the organizational brain is dying. And if that's happening, disruption is ripe. That's so, so fascinating. I, I really love the way you're joining dots here. Um, you know, because when I hear you say this, what sort of resonates again with me is 
the best leaders I've I've worked with intentionally are creating opportunities that they get outside their comfort zone into that space. Like for me personally, the reason I went to South America on my own was because I wanted to sort of challenge myself. Like, could I go and travel on my own? And how would I be? Like, how would I be as a person? Uh, Because I knew it would be good for me. I knew it'd be tough. I knew it'd be hard. I didn't speak the languages. But it was a growth opportunity. As you're saying, your dream to go to Toulouse, right? I'm sure the first day you were standing in that dressing room, I'm sure you felt uncomfortable, nervous. You know, how am I going to prove myself here? And, And I find... With the, with the best leaders I work with, they're, they're actively creating those scenarios to, to keep getting outside their comfort zone because you're, they're extending their edges. And now for a lot of people, and I always say getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is so important because uh, that's where you're alive, right? As you say, your sensory mechanisms are firing. You're, you're, you're looking for these opportunities. You're seeing things in a different way. And yet, for many organizations, we're so conditioned into a set of behaving, thinking and acting that people are beat down, to your point. Um, You know, I'm just thinking of so many great examples, actually, of of folks that have been uh, like creating these scenarios. One of my favorites um, is the CIO of Finair. And And what she used to do is she would try always to keep her organizational structures alive. So when they set up their sort of offices, she had like a, a, a wanted a huge big open room where all the desks could move around, all, all mixed up with engineers, designers, technical staff. Um, and depending on what way they decided the strategy of the company that they wanted to work on or the products they wanted to build, all the people who were involved in those different products would move their desks around and, and plug them all in together and start working on these initiatives, literally like in real time for like six or eight weeks while they were trying to deliver something, right? Maybe, maybe they're trying to improve the, the back office operation systems for, you know, how bags are delivered. All the people involved in delivering that would just move their, their desks to this area and work together. And, and then as they got onto the next project, they'd break all these people up again. And so the company was like alive and living as, as they made choices about where they wanted to go with their products, they would move people like everyone around this area um, and, and reform and different folks working together all the time. And, uh, you know, she used to always say to me is that you need to keep the company alive. The, the strategy needs to stay alive. And then the people and the business and the structures need to stay alive. Um, otherwise, it's, it dies. Yeah, and it was just one of those sort of profound moments where I was just sitting here, here like watching this happen, going, "This is brilliant." You yeah. know, where yeah. no, it's not like, "Oh, that's my desk." No, I sit on the fourth floor. <laughs> no, engineering are like four desks down. No, we never go down there. I've never met anyone from that team. Um, so it was just a really interesting convergence of like thoughtful design. Um, and not letting people get too comfortable, like keeping things a little uncomfortable, like moving stuff around. And um, I just think it's such a powerful method. I love it. And, you know, I, I often thought about that, about, you know, when people go talk about love, right? So fall in love that, 
if you're if your marketplace is limited <laughs> and it's a small village and you never get outside the village, it's like seeing the world with a, with a a cigarette lighter and just like with a Zippo. And instead of even you don't even have a flashlight, you you just can see that very small field of vision versus the global world that we have at our hands is just amazing. Now, you know, when we can get back in the wild, but the opportunities that arise are just huge. And it's one of the things I do, I know you lecture as well, is lecturing to students, master students is go travel like and luckily, most of them are actually traveling to Ireland to do the, the course, but I tell them it's one of the most amazing things. And don't one of the best things that ever happened to me was when I went to France when I was 21st, somebody on the way goes never say no to an invite invitation. So I end up in the most strangest places that I won't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going, I end up here. Oh, yeah, that piece of advice. But again, the brain is just the brain becomes so used to that. And that's what you're saying about it. you become uncomfortable, you come so comfortable with uncomfortable, that it just becomes when, when you get comfortable, it becomes uneasy, you're kind of going, Oh, my God, I, I feel like I'm I'm, you know, I, I talk in the book about cr the crab curves, like you're stuck in the crab shell, and it grates on you, and it's itchy, and you go, and I need to get this off so I can expand and grow. But but I say that to to go, let's bring it into the into your framework, because the cycle of unlearning is fantastic. And we're we're going so much off my notes here that we're not gonna have time. <laughs> we're gonna definitely do a second show, though, I think, you know, uh, there's so much in the book, because because again, all those experiences you've had have gone all over the place. But you say, going back to what you said about the, the CIO and Finnair, that she created this environment that that was a living building, essentially a living environment. And I, and I thought about that from a na nature perspective. And then I thought about, well, what happens to people like you and I who run exec team programs all the time, sometimes they want to do it in their building and the rationale is they want to send save money then the other ones will bring it out and go, we need to get outside the building and we'll think different, etc. But then what as you said happens is they come back and it becomes a one and done event, they go back to business as usual, all the stresses that were in the business environment start to invade their head again. But you give us the cycle of unlearning as a way to unpack that experience and and go through the steps which are very important, you can't skip steps. And I think this is one of the most valuable things I got is if you skip to Oh, I'll just learn new stuff, you're not going to succeed. No, like, it's uh, like, I think of unlearning like a system, you know, and I often say, um, just like uh, products have features, and you've got to constantly innovate the features of your product to stay relevant in its market, humans have behavior. So if you're not constantly innovating your behavior, taking new things in, letting things go, and um, you know, that's where you get stuck. You know, I, I define unlearning as the process of letting go or reframing and moving away from once useful mindsets and acquired behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limit your success. So it's not forgetting or removing your knowledge or experience. It's the conscious act of letting go of outdated information and actively engaging and taking in new information to inform your decision making and action. Now, and uh, so it, you have to think of these things as a system rather. And um, now often people say to me, all right, Barry, well, you know, okay, maybe I believe in this unlearning stuff. How do I know what I need to unlearn? And, and the first step, is, as you mentioned, is to diagnose, to self-recognize where your behaviors are actually limiting your success. So the questions I often ask people are, if 
very simple questions and I'd, I'd encourage the listeners to sort of pull out a piece of paper or whatever and write this down. But it, it, like, if you ask yourself, where am I currently not living up to the expectations that I have for myself? You know, I'm, where am I not getting the outcomes that, that I'm aiming for? Is, is there situations that I'm struggling with or avoiding altogether because I just can't see a path? Or you've tried everything that you can think of and you're still not getting a breakthrough. Right, so not living up to expectations, not getting outcomes, situations you're struggling or avoiding with, or you've just tried everything you think of and you can't sort of break through. Now, often when I ask people that question, it's not a case of them writing down one thing. It's literally a laundry list of stuff that starts appearing because, and, and that's a signal that your, your behavior is not, is not working, right? Like you're, you, we hit obstacles because our behaviors, our mindsets can't get past them. And, and then once you can sort of diagnose that area, then it's really just about reframing the obstacle as the outcome that you're aiming for. So, you know, simple example, Serena's ob obstacle was she wanted to win 29 Grand Slams. She hasn't done it yet, by the way, since the book came out. I feel like I've, I've sort of jinxed her by doing that. Um, but, you know, like that, that was her aspiration was to keep winning Grand Slams, right? And, and she wasn't getting there. That was the signal for her. And, um, you know, when, when I've worked with uh, International Airlines Group, who own British Airways, Iberian, Velling, Aer Lingus, you know, like uh, the leadership team, Willie Walsh in particular, they recognized that in order to keep innovating and growing the business, like they were sending all these leaders on, you know, uh, programs, but they were all coming back and just doing the same stuff that they did the day before. They, they needed to do something radically different. You know, wh what we ended up doing with them was taking six of their executive team out of their company for eight weeks. And, you know, we went off and literally tried to launch new businesses to disrupt their existing company. And, um, you know, for, for many, like the airline industry is all about operational efficiency. You know, you only make money when the plane's in the air. So it's all about turnaround times, razor thin margin and so forth. You know, and, um, you know, Irish listeners would be very, like Willie Walsh is, is, the, is this unique person in the transformation airline industry, right? He's, he, he's one of the main people there. And, one of the most inspiring moments I, I had was when he sat there and even himself said, I'm going to have to manage this initiative differently. You know, my, my natural methods are about uh, optimization and, and tweaking things and improving them. But the kind of innovation we're going to have to do there is it's all uncertainty. There won't be obvious answers. We'll make mistakes. We'll get it wrong. And, and I, so I'm going to have to unlearn how I manage to make this initiative successful. You know, and if ever I saw a team be lifted and inspired by a moment, it was it was that kind of leadership. And, you know, they went on to create the first identity blockchain system for the airline industry, you know, machine learning algorithms that would process customer complaints in, in minutes that used to take months. Uh, and like and pre-pandemic, uh, IAG were back like make you know they were up 25 percent year on year in the last two or three years so they they were flying because they were these execs came back into the company their conditioning had changed right they were they 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 were thinking and behaving differently um so when and you know classic sort of uh, funny anecdote was um after uh they were on this exec camp with me and uh, one of the them sent me this email you know where um someone comes into his office saying, hey, we've just got this new project. We need you to sign it off. Um, and he was like, 
re reply to his his staff was like, why are you asking me to sign it off? You should be out in the terminals testing it with customers and getting them to sign it off. Which was this huge mental shift from the classic sort of hierarchy mode of manager signs stuff off and then we release products. They 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 were shifting to just customers use it if they love it, then we just launch it. Like we, management don't need to get involved, let's go. And I think all these subtle shifts in behavior then have massive effect in performance because they're, they're pushing authority down to people at the front lines of, of their companies. They're, you know, people feel engaged that they can make decisions, they can take risks, they can, uh, and, and risk is all about small steps, like thinking big and starting small, little small steps that you're going to take to try and either tweak your behavior or try new things. And that's been some of the, the real, you know, great moments for me and the, and the stories of people who've applied this method or, you know, and just had great success of thinking big about what they need to unlearn, starting small with new behaviors as they relearn to figure out what works and what doesn't so they can get the breakthroughs they're looking for. And as you say, it's not a one and done event. The yeah. people who yeah. practice this actually becomes a virtuous cycle that you can continuously adapt to changing circumstances and I think that's one of the, the this sort of seminal skills, I think, of the future. One of the things I, I, I thought of when I was reading this, and now it's been reinforced listening to you now, is the way I, I mentioned that you, for example, have traveled, I've traveled a lot. And I'm thinking here of so many of our audience are corporate change makers or head of innovation or global heads of change or HR or L&D managers. So everybody involved in change. And I often think that they're li living on the cutting edge of change. Most most of us are in that world. And, and we love it. We love it. But oftentimes, it's because we're wired differently. And I, I often think of it like your your ability to change your, your neuroplasticity, if you want to call that is like a thermometer. And your thermometer for change is turned right up. So you, you don't feel you don't feel the heat until it's very, very hot. But somebody who is not used to change, that is somebody who's actually doing their job really well on the world as it is today. So when we try and set the temperature of I'll stay with that analogy for the moment, for the same for everybody and try and bring in a change program, of course, you're going to have the corporate antibodies reject rejecting it because everybody's at a different rate of change. And this is why I thought what you said here, taking little, little steps, little experiments, and, and even that using the language like that, rather than change in issues, or even innovation, using language like this is an experiment we're trying and handing authority and autonomy over to people in small teams to try stuff is absolutely so important for any change initiative to take place. Like change is scary uh, if you don't do it. And then if, but if you practice it, it becomes easier, right? And I've had the pleasure to sort of uh, work and train with BJ Fogg. I don't know if you've had him on the show. He's yeah, like, he was uh, on before Christmas, man. Brilliant oh, show. I saw it because yeah. you, you mentioned BJ in the in the book as well. And Dave, L. David Marquet, for example. Yeah. yeah so um, like, you know, I've worked with BJ for a long, long uh, time, you know, and he, he, a lot of his notion of tiny habits is just actually descaling new behaviors down to tiny, tiny little steps just to get started. And um, and then you build up from there, right? And, you know, and this is why I say thinking big, start small, learn fast in the book. 
small makes it safe, right? Small, you have psychological safety. You, you make small mistakes in front of your peers that you don't feel like you're, you've totally exposed yourself. And um, a small step uh, makes a safe to fail experiment. You can recover if we take it, if we take a wrong step in the wrong direction, we just recover. But a small also makes it economically safe. You make small bets, small investments, learn what works and what doesn't. So, the power of small is is so powerful, and yet it's counterintuitive to so much innovation uh, sort of myth, right? You have to have this big idea and have these big big programs and big budgets and big launches, and that those all things become too big to fail, and they fail. Where counterintuitively, um, it's about thinking big, but actually starting small and learning your way through the uncertainty, taking these sort of small steps to get there. Um, and, you know, like you think of the biggest companies in the world, no one started big. They started small and they, they, they became big. And if anything, the way they stay nimble is that they keep things small or they atomize. You know, the reason Amazon have the two pizza teams is because they're trying to keep the team small so they can be connected to customers, learn what works and iterate fast, right? Cross-functional teams. That's why we have small cross-functional product teams. Again, so, so th this power of small, I think, is always underrated and, and it's counterintuitive to a lot of people because, you know, there's ego around big budgets, big teams. How many people work for me? I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this huge innovation. I have a global rollout that I'm responsible for. And, um, all those projects get into trouble, you know, and, um, that, that's what I've just observed again and again and again. And, yeah, there's tons of stories in the book, whether it's yeah. the team in Disney who reinvented the, you know, the way the parks operated. Man, I was just going to say this. This is this was gold to me. I really wanted to share this story because this for me is one of the best because many people may consider Disney and go, oh, I, they probably brought in one of the big consultancy agencies and built this. But they did very much a mix of so many things you talk about in the book, like the CIO in Finnair creating that space, they commandeered a space and they used it and created a virtual prototype. I love this story. Let's share this one. So, uh, you know, Bob Baker, who's the uh, current CEO chairman of the company, it's quite a visionary person anyway. But, you know, like recognizing that the that Parks is a huge business for them, probably, and uh, or was, as we say, it uh, seems to be at the moment. But um, you know, he recognized that they were really struggling. People were going to the parks, long queues, really difficult to get there. People weren't enjoying the experiences. Like their, their, their key metric was people's intent to return. It was through the floor. It's like less than 10%. So it was really difficult. Um, but he, he recognized that, the, that, that their existing methods were not working, right? They weren't achieving the outcomes that they were aiming for. Um, unhappy customers, people not wanting to come back. That was their key metric. Um, so th they did something uh, quite challenging, right? The, the antibodies in the Disney world are the Imagineers, and, and they're sort of the custodians of Walt Disney's uh, image of what Disney should be, and the parks are actually the most physical manifestation of that, obviously. Um, so anytime they're trying to change anything, there's always huge pushback. It, like, would Walt want to do this? Like, it's like the ghost <laughs> of, like, the... He goes to Steve Jobs in, in Apple, you know, it's like, what would Steve do? And, um, you know, so the, the sort of interesting thing that he did, did is he, he picked a couple of different people out of the organization and he, he, he moved them off to this sort of abandoned part of the park and set them up 
in this sort of, um, you know, warehouse facility where they started playing around with different technologies, tools, ideas about how they could make the park experience better. And, and the very first sort of expression that they came up with was, um, uh, what this sort of band that you might put on yourself and, uh, you know, you could magically touch things and it would open doors and it would pay for things. And, but, the, but the very first actual experience that they created for anybody to use it was just this dummy plastic band. And what they did is they, the team invited Bob Iger, another, another one of the senior execs, to come to this sort of what was essentially a play. It was, it was literally basically theatre where they sort of magically picked them up in this car and put this, this literally pla- piece of plastic on them and would walk them around the park experience sort of going, look, you've just, you've just uh, tapped this over here and you've, you've bought a cheeseburger. Hey, um, because we know how everyone's moving around the park, we know that there's a longer queue at Magic Mountain. So we need to open up extra uh, um, areas so people can actually get through there quicker. And so they created this totally prototyped experience of what the product was going to be. And um, so they, so Bob Eager and the team could experience what the change would be and um, to shift their mindset, right? They were behaving differently so they could see the world differently and innovate. And I, that's literally how they, they started building the magic band. And even, even when they started to roll it out in the park, they just picked one, one hotel to start practicing with. They, they only sent it to a subset of, of guests that would have a small opportunity to start playing with it. And, even internally in the park, most of the hotels didn't want it. Their initial reaction was like, "What people aren't going to use this? Why would why would they?" And now, um, you know, by starting small and experimenting and role modeling and showing these new behaviors to people, one hotel got it, then the next, then all of them. Now, now people collect the magic bands that Disney be, as like it's like again more Disney merchandise that people want and. They also understand how the parks operate and work better because they have data now. They're, they're understanding uh, user flow through uh, if it rains on a certain day, what more, what do they stock even in terms of food that people buy? So the performance of the parks has actually gone up. Um, and, but also the delight um, of their customers where kids run around and just touch things. And, and, and um, it's, it's been a phenomenal story for them, you know, and, uh, I took a lot of inspiration um, in in all the programs I've, I've run. You know, uh, when, again with uh, working with British Airways to sort of redesign Terminal Seven in New York, we took over one of the abandoned business class rooms, and like literally got the exec team set up in there for like a week where they were designing experiments, walking out onto the sort of the floor in Terminal Seven. And believe me, most people have no idea who the executive team are or the companies that they travel with. So I'd have like CEOs sitting sitting down in the in the terminal, just asking it. You know, people. You know, why are you queuing here? What what's frustrating about sitting in this um, air, the terminal? Like it's like undercover boss type scenarios, and they learn a huge amount, um, and then they bring that back into the team and start iterating their ideas, and then they build better products and better services because they're outside their comfort zone, talking to customers, learning what works, what doesn't. One of the great stories I loved, and I thought it was such a valuable one to share, and shows your experience of understanding the customer and working with Eric Reese, who also wrote a great endorsement for your book. 
you, I wanted to share one that emanates from your exec camp program, which is the one of the mobile phone service provider and the five executives you sent out with prepaid credit cards. This one was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, we'll, we'll just call them a very well-known phone manufacturer. Um, and like this, this team, um, you know, like they've been building phones for, and shipping them for over 10 years. Like they, they had high confidence that they had a perfect strategy for rolling out and launching phones in market. And um, so the, the, the task I sort of set to them was, and you know, this is the conditioning, right? Like we, 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 we're convinced we know how to do this perfectly. Uh, so what I gave them were uh, five uh, prepaid credit cards with $1,000 on them each. And they had to go out and, and purchase the phone within two hours because that was the, S, the service level agreement that they had put in place for their strategy. Right, so five execs, two hours, thousand bucks each in a card, off they go. You know, and, and how do you think they got on is sort of, uh, you know, and uh, people always laugh, you know, I say, how many people, how many of them do you think were able to get the phone in the two hours? Uh, and, and invariably, most people laugh and say zero, but actually one of them did. But, and, and when they came back, they were so frustrated, right? People were blaming the cards. They were blaming the tellers. They were, it was all like exterior. Um, but when we actually sort of sat down and talked about it, they realized that, that the failures were gifts, right? They, they were valid. They were showing that their assumptions about how things worked were invalid. And in fact, that they had to unlearn them. And if they could see these failures or mistakes or problems with their strategies or assumptions as gifts, then they could improve the strategy by by iterating based on what they learned. Um, and so I'm always trying to create these scenarios where, you know, this isn't hundreds of people watching the exec team try and buy cards and laugh at them and say that they're silly. It's a small, safe to fail experiment, right? It's just five people. No one else knew we were doing this, you know. They went out, they tried it, um, you know, it, it didn't work for them. And the mistakes were small mistakes. Great. So we've learned this. Now, how can we improve our thinking and improve our strategy for how we do this program? Um, and that's a really important part, right? It's not to make people look foolish. It's so they can learn, so they can test their assumptions about how the world operates. And we slip, Barry, into, into you know, our attitude slips sometimes and you have to constantly work on it. I think that's one thing. There's no safe harbor for you've, you've hit the destination and it's time to just protect the moat of what your success is. And I thought about this even recently. So one of the things that I, I do is lecture and I lecture and, and there's 110 students and I correct their assignments. And so many people and me at the start was like going on, oh my god, I have to correct all these assignments. And people were like, oh, I hate that hate to have to do that. And and I was like, oh, well, I'm going to change my attitude about this. And I did. And I, and I went, okay, I'm, these guys are from all different corners of the globe. They're going to go and write these essays with a similar theme, in so many different ways, drawing on different information that I don't even know is out there, because they're going to search for it in different places and adding in their own experiences, and etc. And I changed it into this amazing learning experience where I glean so much knowledge. Because if you think about when when a guest comes on the show, you know, I, I, I reach out to that guest, I invite them onto the show most of the time, sometimes they reach out to me. But but I want to learn, I want to read their book. And this is more 
it's information that's brought to my attention and it's a very very different mindset and it's such a valuable really valuable one but it made me think of the beautiful zen story of the teacup and i'd love if you'd share that because i think this is a lovely way to start landing the ship of today's show to to let you let everyone know why we have to do this just a, a really great sort of uh, Zen mythology sort of story about where, you know, a student comes to, to, to learn from the teacher, you know, and, and they have an analogy of this cup. And, you know, the, the teacher keeps asking the student to you know, fill, fill up the, this cup, you know, and uh, he just keeps pouring, you know, tea into the cup until it sort of overflows. And, and I guess the, the lesson there is sort of, it, you know, it, it, we, we sometimes pour new information and more knowledge in, into our own cups um, till it overflows. And p- part of it is actually really understanding that you have to empty, uh, make space actually for new information to come in rather than just keep pouring more and more, you know, learning organizations. When Peter Singh wrote uh, the phenomenal book uh, that he did, um, and learning organizations, you know, exploded into the world. Uh, like no one tells me they're not a learning organization in the world, but like, are they actually doing anything with the information they're gathering or can they even access it? And I think that's one of the great um, things I've, I've noticed is, you know, when you're adding something, what are you taking away? Uh, and, you know, another great uh, sort of, again, uh, from actually uh, Toyota and Lean is this idea is sort of, you know, to, to, to build knowledge add something every day to build wisdom remove something every day all, all these sort of you know people hundreds of years ago said these things and somehow yet we have still failed to learn the lessons in many ways and and um, i think that's one of the things that has really stood out to me uh, from doing a lot of this spending time with people is just if you're adding something take something away and 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 in many ways the best innovation is not as even Apple said, they're not proud of the features they add. Sometimes they're proud of the features they don't put in. And I thought about so many senior executives, CEOs, etc., that oftentimes they cling to the jobs that they like to do rather than delegate them because delegation actually means growth because it means, well, I've mastered that. I don't need to be doing that anymore. I can actually build upon it. But I wanted to talk about one last thing it's the exercise and by the way we didn't even get into i'd say we've covered five percent of the book here but you talk about the conditions to learn the conditions to unlearn the conditions to relearn and then the conditions for breakthroughs to happen so they're all separate chapters in the book but i wanted to jump to an exercise you mentioned on measurement you say once behaviors are measurable we only have to quantify how often they would be happening as evidence that we have unlearned. I'd love if you'd expand on this because you you suggest an exercise here, Barry, you rightly say many of us struggle to define success, especially when mentally trapped in our day to day operational view of the world. And when this is the case, you offer us an alternative tactic, you suggest we write down what would be the case if you fail to unlearn, and then you flip it around. So I'd love if it expand maybe on those and I'm, I'm putting a lot on you in one go, but we're running out of time. This is sort of this, uh, again, this flip, right? On learning when we're hitting these obstacles, we tend to actually focus on fixing the obstacle and lose sight of the actual outcome that we want, right? Like, um, sim- simple sort of example of this is, you know, e- even, even in, in your own body, you know, if you, if you have a sore knee, you know, you 
start focusing on, on my, my, my knee is sore and I, I need to fix my knee and people get operations on their knees. And But the real problem is that they actually needed to have a healthier diet, lose weight uh, and exercise more uh, that didn't focus on whatever was causing the pain, right? But it, class, d- 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 these are sort of where we get trapped in the, the, even in business, the obstacle in front of our nose, right? And we just solve the incremental problem in front of our nose but the actual real outcome we want is something much bigger, you know. And and this is why one method that's that's been massively popularized uh, at Amazon was this idea of like future visioning or writing. What you know, what 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 if you ha- are the challenges people wrote down when they wrote uh, what they wanted to unlearn is um you have to envisage this new future two to three years out and like write down a press release to yourself of. What would sort of be happening? What would be different in the world with yourself, your customers, the people you're working with? And it's really important to think about the changes in human behavior. What would you be doing differently? So even if, and and write that down. And I think it, because it's transition from when you're talking about obstacles, people are critically thinking. And then you ask them to flip modes and think about the future visioning. It's a whole different set of mental muscles. It takes time to, for people to context switch and, and they don't make time for context switching and open thinking and, um, you know, because they're so busy just executing work every day, right? And uh, so I can, some fun examples for me, like even writing a book is a classic example where I needed to unlearn, right? Because I, I have a solid history of D pluses in English literature. I'm convinced if my te- English teacher knew that I'd written a book, he would laugh <laughs> and not believe me. Um, right, but, but I had this notion that writing had to be about typing. Right. I had this vision that writers sort of sit in these a purple velvet jacket by a roaring fire with a glass of wine, like Hemingway. <laughs> with a monocle. Turn, yeah. Right. Just churning out these typing pages. And, and as, as hard as I tried to do that behavior, it just didn't work for me. Right. So I, I wasn't hitting the outcomes that I wanted to, to be a writer. You know, so so I, I sort of had to stop and reflect. And, and my story of success then when I started to think, well, in two to three years, what would be happening? I'd be like, God, you know, I'd be creating content all the time. I'd be sharing it with lots of people. Um, you know, people would be like sharing it with others. And, and it helped me realize that I actually, I, it wasn't about writing that I was trying to do. I was trying to create content. And then when I reframed writing, because writing is just one form of content, and when I reframed the success I wanted was actually creating content and sharing it in the world, then I started thinking, well, hell, there's loads of ways to create content. And what's the what's another approach I could take to try and create content? And for me, actually, what's easier is to talk about things, not not actually type them. So what I did was I, I started working with an editor who I would get them to interview me about the different chapters or the stories of the book. And we would use uh, Otter AI to transcribe all the conversations. So we'd just have a call for an hour. We'd record it. He would get this sort of transcript of the whole talk and he'd edit it and send me this sort of early prototype, like a bad version of the first chapter. And then I could react to it and go, no, that's wrong. And I forgot that story and I need to move this around here. So very fast, we were like iterating these chapters. Um, and, you know, before you know it, do that 12 times and you got a book. And so, you know, my unlearning was reframing actually what the outcome I was 
and and then trying small steps like these trying interviews trying talking trying transcribing and um, and that's what gave me the breakthrough uh, and now like to the point where I don't type blogs anymore. I just literally press a button here and I have an AI that I just talk a blog and I get a thousand words in, in, in five minutes. And it's my voice. It's my tone. It's me. If people, you know, and, uh, that was a, a huge example of sort of a breakthrough for me, you know, of, of asking myself, realizing I was, it was failing. It was not working. What would be different? Flipping it around. Um, and using this sort of press release method that's famously made by Amazon. And, uh, you know, if you go into Amazon day one building, you can see on day, the bottom floor, all, all these press releases of these products are all over the building from, um, uh, you know, uh, the talking Alexa to prime and it's bold thinking, but this changes in behavior. And then you just, once you know the behavior, you quantify and constrain it and off you go. Beautiful. I was going to ask you to, uh, I usually ask the guests to kind of finish on a, a lovely message, but I think you've nailed it. You've just done it. So uh, instead, I'm going to ask you where people can find you, find out more about your book, your exec camp workshops, your other workshops. Where can they find you, Barry? I'm barryoreilly.com and, and, and all good social media outlets the same. Uh, so, yeah, if you've been inspired by what you've heard, I absolutely would love you to read the book and enjoy it. But more importantly, like reach out and tell me or try what you've tried, what's worked, what hasn't. I I'm always trying to capture people's unlearning stories and, and share them back with people as well. So thanks for a fun conversation, Aidan, and I appreciate the research and work you put into preparing for these t so we can go much deeper on the ideas. So thank you very much for that. Well, it's a cycle of unlearning, my friend. And by the way, just to remind everyone, I have a copy up for grabs. So for anybody who wants to win that, sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you will be in a chance winning this copy of Unlearn, Let Go of Past Success to Achieve Extraordinary Results. And we want to thank the author of that book today, Barry O'Reilly. Thank you for joining us. Stay foolish.